If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jason. I always have to adjust this because I seem to be the shortest person who ever comes up here. But <laughs> let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 1 Corinthians 6. It's got a lot of um, difficult things to understand in there. It's also got a lot of difficult things to do in there as well. 
Uh, and sometimes that's the hardest thing is uh, doing more than understanding. Lord, we just pray, Father, that as we have a look at this chapter this morning, I pray that you'd open our hearts and open our ears to hear what you have to say through your word. Help us to apply some of these things. Some of these things will be difficult for some of us who have been wronged by others. Um, but uh, many of it will be difficult for all of us too. But help us, Lord, with the help of your Holy Spirit and through looking at your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to hear what you have to say in these, in these verses and help us to apply it to our lives. We ask for this in your name. Amen. So today, as you know, we've just had it read out. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Who found that really easy to follow? Well, good on you, Steve. Do you want to swap places? <laughs> but before we have a look at it, I want to talk a little bit about the temple, the Jewish temple. Now, you might ask, why are we going to look at the Jewish temple before we have a look at the rest of the chapter? It's because right towards the end of chapter 6, Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So why did Paul say this? Well, I think as we go through this chapter, we'll see that the reason he says this is that it helps to explain all the other stuff that he talks about in the earlier part of chapter 6. For instance, the reason he talks about lawsuits, the reason he talks about sexual immorality, is because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I guess, what do we mean that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be God's temple? Who here has been to a temple? What sort of temple did you go to, Susan? Greece? So it was a pagan temple. Kemi, what sort of temple did you go to? Sorry? Oh, the church. Oh, you're, you're very spiritual. But <laughs> okay, but some of you might have been to Bali and been to a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple somewhere or an ancient pagan uh, ruined temple in the Greek world. Uh, but we don't have a lot of temples here in Australia. I mean, there are some of them. And... But the idea of the temple in the Bible is a bit different to those sorts of temples. And actually, it's quite a bit different. Um, the people of the Roman world had lots of temples, many of them to false gods. But Paul wasn't here talking about just any old temple. He was talking about one specific temple. He was referring to the Jewish temple, the one that was in Jerusalem for the one true God. The one that was modelled on the tabernacle, which was the tent in the desert of Sinai. The tent, the very specific tent, not just any old tent, that God gave Moses very specific instructions about how to build it. You've got to have this room here, it's got to measure this way, it's got to have, have these particular furniture items in it, and so on. So you see, to really understand chapter 6 and why sin is so bad... Why we shouldn't take lawsuits between believers to unbelievers. Why we need to be holy and pure, both sexually and in other ways. We need to understand what the temple is. Now, we often think of the temple as a place where you worship God. Who would think that's what a temple is? It's where you worship God or are gods or something like that. And while that is true, the Jewish temple was actually a lot more than a place to worship God. 
To understand what the temple was, we need to go right back to the tabernacle because the tabernacle was really the first temple. It was just a movable temple. And the tabernacle was the tent of God in the Sinai wilderness. And we need to look at why God told the Israelites to build this special structure. You see, the tabernacle and then the temple, along with it, the sacrificial system that went with it and the priests and the sacrifices were all built to solve a problem. And that problem is the biggest problem that has ever existed. And that problem is this, that we, as people, in one very important way, are not like God. We, unlike God, are sinners. We are not holy. We are not pure. We break God's commands. So that means that we are not like God in terms of holiness. God is holy. He is pure. He is perfect. And so there is this big difference. And that creates a massive problem. And the problem is that we cannot come close to God. We cannot come near to God. Because God is perfect. He is holy. And he requires that anybody who comes to him, anybody who desires to live in his presence, to be holy and pure like he is, and to be set apart for him. But the problem is that we aren't like that. Paul reminds us of that. In 1 Corinthians 6, chapters 9 to the first part of 11, he says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who's in trouble? <laughs> Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers. Phew! That's a lot of things. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. I think Paul was being nice when he said some. You know, all people are like this. Imperfect. And not just in a small way, but big time. And that means the consequences of it is that we are separated from a holy and pure God. So around about three and a half thousand years ago, give or take a few years, in the Sinai Desert over there in the Middle East, God told the Israelites to build a place where he could dwell, where he could live amongst his people. At first, it was a specially built tent, sometimes called the tabernacle. And that was appropriate because at that time, the Israelites were on the move. They were not in one fixed place. So with a tent, you can pack it up and reassemble the tent as you move around. But once they settled back in Jerusalem, a permanent structure on the same pattern and using the same model was built in Jerusalem, in a fixed place, a fixed building. And that is the temple. Not only was it the place where God dwelled, but it was also the place where God and people could meet together. And that's important because you don't want somewhere just where God dwells, but we can't go there. You need somewhere where God and people can dwell together. But you see, the thing is, you couldn't just waltz in there, into the temple, especially into the most holy place of the temple as a sinner. 
There were all sorts of sacrifices and procedures that the priests, and particularly the high priest, had to go through to enter the temple. And the reason is that nothing impure, nothing unclean, could go into the temple or even close to it. Because the temple was the place of God's presence. It was a place of purity. It was a place without sin, without wrongdoing. And so when in 1 Corinthians 6.19 it says we are God's temple, it means that we, we, you, me, are a place that ought to be clean, that ought to be holy, separated to God and separated from the unclean, impure and sinful world that surrounds us. If we understand that, it will help us to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And it will help us to understand the focus there that we see on God's people, God's saints, God's holy ones, and the need for them to be separated from wrongdoing and impurity. So let us now have a closer look at this chapter. If we look at the beginning of chapter 6 with the talk of lawsuits among believers we need to realise that this is actually a continuation of the discussion in chapter 5. We don't often realise that because, you see, at the end of chapter 5, between chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, your Bible probably has a big subject heading, a big space and a big number 6. Whose Bible has that? And if you're reading it on your phone, the division's even worse because you've got to click through to the next page. And so it creates an artificial division between those chapters that was not there in the original. In the original, they didn't have chapters, numbers, they didn't have section headings. Chapter 6 just flowed on nicely from chapter 5, and so those numbers and headings have been put in there by editors and Bible publishers just to help us find our way around the Bible easily. And I'm one of them, so I'm guilty of that. But, so it's got a good reason. But let's remember back to chapter 5 from when Carl preached on that last week. Chapter 5, who remembers what that was about? Anyone want to volunteer? Sorry? Sexual immorality. Yes, it was about sexual immorality. And what were the Corinthian Christians doing about that sexual immorality? Nothing! Exactly. And that was also a big problem. Maybe it was an even bigger problem. There was serious sin that even ungodly, unclean Gentiles, that even those people regarded as abominable. And the worst thing was that the Christians in Corinth did not care about it. They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything about this terrible sin, which in that case was a man sleeping with his stepmother. They had totally missed the point. That as God's people, as Christians, they needed, as the church, needed to be pure and holy. But the interesting thing is that we find out in chapter 6, it's not like they didn't care about anything. There were actually some things they cared about. Let's see what they are. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, If any of you has a dispute with another... Now, the way this is written in the following verses... It seems as though this was some sort of property or financial dispute. Maybe one of the members of the church reckoned that another member owed them some money or had diddled them out of something. Either way, two members of the church were fighting over some personal dispute and they had got so heated about it 
that they were willing to take it to a secular court to resolve the matter. So the first thing we see is that the Corinthian churches, the, not church, I mean, the Corinthian Christians had their priorities all wrong. They focused on small things. Small, I must say, in the whole scheme of things, because anyone who's been in a financial or property dispute will know it doesn't seem like small at the time. But they focused on things that seem small, that are actually small in the whole scheme of things, like property and money disputes, while ignoring the big things like gross sexual immorality. They were more concerned about losing a few bucks, or denarii, or whatever they had back then, than honouring God with their bodies and with their lives. But, you might say, surely a property or a financial dispute is a big deal. And, well, it is. Many of us, perhaps most of us, know what it is like to be defrauded, robbed, done over, some way diddled, paid for something you didn't get, paid for shoddy work, or were business partners with someone and it all went pear-shaped. You name it, I'm sure we've all been there. And when that happens, does it hurt? It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts in our hip pocket, but it also hurts emotionally. And it particularly hurts when that loss has been caused by a fellow Christian. And yes, there should be some grounds for recompense when something like that happens. But what Paul was horrified was at the idea of one Christian taking another Christian to a secular court and for the case to be heard by a non-Christian judge. Why was he horrified by that? As he said in verses 2 and 3, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So almost as soon as Paul brings up this issue, he gets us to look beyond this life, beyond this world, to the world to come. And in the world to come, God's people, Christians, will join Christ in judging the world. We will even judge angels. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? If we're going to do that, then surely, surely, we can judge the things of this life, like property and financial disputes, which Paul reminds us, in the light of eternity, in the light of eternity, and what really matters are actually trivial cases, although, of course, they never seem like that at the time. Paul is horrified that instead of taking such cases to other believers, that Christians were taking them to secular courts to be judged by non-believers, to be judged by people who will not be judging the world, by people who will not be judging angels. Paul is making a very strong and clear distinction between those who follow Christ on one hand and those who do not. It's almost like there are two worlds. Actually, it's not almost like there are two worlds. There are two worlds. The holy, the pure, the world with God and the world without God. Unholy, impure. And if we are a Christian, we need to make sure we don't mix those worlds. 
But going even further than that, in verse 7, he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. So don't worry about trying to win when you go to court because you've already lost. That's sobering to hear, isn't it? If Christians have disputes between themselves, then that means something really has gone wrong. The solution for Paul, the solution is radical. In verse 7 he writes, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? That's pretty hard when you think about it. But for Paul, that was better than taking a dispute before a non-believing judge. And that's pretty difficult advice to receive, especially if a fellow Christian has wronged you. But Paul now reserves his biggest salvo for those believers who are the ones who are doing wrong to other believers. In verse 8 and 9, he says, Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is a pretty strong warning. And Paul now moves from cheating other people to a whole range of other sins, such as sexual immorality, robbery, greedy people, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers... And now, I covered those verses 9 to 11 and the sins in them earlier this year when I preached a sermon on why did Jesus die back in March. And so we won't go through all the details of those sins again today. That was hard enough going through it in March. But if you really want to go through it again and you missed that sermon, it is available on the church website. But for us, it might seem strange that suddenly Paul seems to be changing topic. He's been talking about disputes between believers and now all of a sudden he's talking about a whole range of other sins with a particular focus on sexual immorality. How do we jump from disputes, financial disputes to sexual immorality? But in fact, it's not a strange sudden change of topic. He is actually getting back to his original topic. Remember, chapter 6 comes after chapter... Well done, you can do maths. And the main topic of chapter 5 was that one of the Corinthian Christians was committing gross sexual immorality. And the church didn't give a hoot. They didn't care less. They didn't judge him for it. And in chapter 5, Paul tells them to gather together and hand this sinner over to Satan. In other words, to make a judgment on him. As we heard last week, that was factually for the long-term benefit of the sinner. But there was a need to bring that to uh, the church to make a judgment, a decision on that. And at the end of chapter 5, Paul tells the church that while they have no business to judge those people outside the church, that they must judge those inside the church. And last week, Carl explained how that judging works and how it's different to the one in Matthew. But Christians are to cast judgment on other Christians when they sin in gross ways. But rather than assembling together and casting judgments on matters of sin, which can endanger the very soul of the sinner, members of the Corinthian church were only too quick to accuse other Christians of defrauding them, even to the point of going to a secular court. So now halfway through chapter 6, Paul is now returning back to his original topic of how damaging sexual sin really is. 
It seems that the Corinthian Christians didn't think that sleeping around with anyone at any time was a big deal. Go for it! They even had a saying, which we read in verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say. Then in verse 13, they have another saying. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Now, we don't really exactly know what the first part of that expression meant. But the general idea was that when we die, there will be no stomach. We won't have a stomach. We won't have a physical body. It will just be our soul, our spirit, that would remain and go on for eternity. And so the Corinthian Christians seem to have this idea that because sex is a bodily function and because the body would be destroyed at death and eternal life would go on in some disembodied form like a spirit or soul or ghost, we would just be a spirit or soul or something like that forever, then you could do whatever you like with your bodies in this life, including sleeping around. But Paul tells them that this is actually not the case. In verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Paul tells the Corinthian Christians, and he's telling us too, that even though our bodies will decay when we die, they'll be put in a grave or burned, however you will be, what will happen after you die, one day God will raise our bodies from the dead just like he raised our Lord, Jesus, bodily from the dead. And we'll hear more about the resurrection of our physical bodies in January, when we get to chapter 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead in some detail. But because the bodies of Christians are eternal, and because we will have our bodies forever, there are some implications regarding that. It means that our bodies are actually very important. In verse second half of verse 13, Paul tells them, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. If you are a Christian, then your body, both your current body in this age, as well as your future resurrected body in the age to come, is for the Lord. You cannot use your body both for sexual immorality and for the Lord. Why? Because we are told in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now this is not saying that all sex is impure. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 7, Paul talks about sex and marriage. And in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7, he endorses sex in marriage, where he says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to a husband. So we can see that if you are a married heterosexual couple, then go for it. Sex is good. You can see someone smiling there. I won't say who. So back, so back to chapter 6. What God is saying is not that sex in itself is impure, 
but that the wrong type of sex is impure. That is, any sex that is not within a heterosexual marriage. That is wrong and that is impure. And it is something a Christian must not do. Why? Verses 16 and 17 tells us why. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? One. For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. One. And that's the problem. When you have sex with someone, you actually unite with that person. You become one with that person. And when you become a Christian, you unite with the Lord. You become one with the Lord Jesus. So if a man has sex with his wife or a woman has sex with her husband, that sex is holy. It is pure. So it is no problem for that same person to be united with the Lord Jesus. But if someone has sex with someone who is not their opposite sex spouse, then that is impure. How can that same person then be united with the Lord Jesus? As Paul says in verse 19, the first part of verse 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Remember earlier in this sermon what the temple is? What is it? Do you remember? See if you can remember. Holy place. That's right. It is a holy place. It's a pure place where no uncleanness and no sin can be. And in the Old Testament, when something or someone impure, unholy, went into the temple, there was fireworks. There was judgment from God. So, what is the solution? It's a simple solution, but sometimes it's hard to do in our struggle with temptation. Verse 18, it says, Go as close to sexual immorality as you can get without touching it. Is that right? What does your Bible say, Steve? Flee! Flee from sexual immorality. Now that's easy to say, but in our sex-saturated world, where scantily clad sexy people just seem to come at you in ads on the internet, who's ever had that happen? Where sleeping around with anyone of either gender is considered normal and healthy, where our passions can drive and tempt us, it is not always easy to flee from sexual immorality. But I tell you what is harder than fleeing from sexual immorality. It's getting as close as you can get to sexual immorality and then actually saying no. That's much harder. Fleeing sexual immorality means that if you know you can be tempted in an area of sexual immorality, then stay as far away from it as you can. Flee from it. I remember when we lived in Central Asia. Yep, there it is. The mountains were enormous. And there were roads that went along the sides of the mountains like that. And some of those roads had these terrifying drops that made you want to close your eyes. They made Jacob's Ladder look like a straight, flat highway in comparison. <laughs> Sometimes you'd get drivers who would drive nice and slowly and stay well away from the edge. Sometimes. 
But most of the time, you'd get drivers that would drive fast, close to the edge. Can you see that drop there on the right? That's, that's a drop of a few thousand feet. Do you know which driver I preferred? The slow driver or the fast driver? The one who stayed well away from that edge or one who tried to get as close to it as possible? I don't know about you, but I actually went on those roads. I preferred the driver who stayed as far away from the edge as he could. If you flirt with sexual immorality, with porn, lust, bad thoughts, maybe being alone at home with your girlfriend or boyfriend, maybe going to certain internet sites or watching certain shows or movies, or whatever it is that is dangerous for you, you are driving close to the edge. One slip, one wrong move, and you're gone. Quite a lot of them on that road too. That's why Paul doesn't just say, don't do sexual immorality, but flee from it. Stay as far away from it as you can. He continues on in the rest of verse 18. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Yes, it's true, all sin is serious. But in some special way, if you sin sexually, you actually sin against your own body. And it's not just that it's against your own body, because if we are a Christian, our bodies are not our own. As Paul reminds us in verse 19 and the first part of 20, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. You do not own yourself. God does. If you are a follower of Christ, you are not your own. You belong to God because he has bought you with the massive price of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you sin against your body, it's not just your body you are sinning against, it's God's body. And that is why Paul closes the chapter with these words. In verse 20, Therefore, honour God with your bodies. So, friends, that's chapter 6. It's heavy. Who reckons it's heavy? Who reckons it's hard? Who reckons it's pretty easy? It's heavy, but it's important. It's very important. It gets right to the heart of the holiness of God and how we also are to be holy. Chapter 5 and 6 talk about the holiness and the purity of God and that we must not be like the sinful world. Instead, we must be holy. We must be like God because if we follow Christ, we are God's temple. In many ways... These chapters talk about separation. A sharp line of distinction between life with God and life without God. As Christians, we need to be separate and distinct. Not, that does not mean we need to be physically separate from unbelievers and keep to our holy huddles. Not at all. Because elsewhere in many places in the New Testament, it tells us that we are to mix with unbelievers. That we should be doing that. That we should not withdraw from them. And that we should use whatever opportunity we have to tell unbelievers about Christ. But we are to be separate and completely different in the way 
that we live. Paul focuses on sexual immorality in these chapters. But in the middle of chapter 6, he does mention many other sins, wrong things as well. And he also starts off chapter 6 by talking about those lawsuits we looked at amongst unbelievers. Basically saying that unbelievers should not be having disputes with one another in the first place. Because if that happens, it means that at least one believer has wronged another. Or maybe both of them have wronged each other. But if there are disputes between believers, then we really ought to be able to sort it out and resolve the problems between ourselves. Between other Christians who are also temples of the Holy Spirit, rather than take our disputes to someone who does not follow Jesus and who is not a temple of the Holy Spirit. Friends, as you've listened to this message today, you might be feeling convicted. You might be feeling guilty or shamed. Whether it's sexual sin or whether it's some other type of sin or wrongdoing. You may realize that you have not been as pure and holy as God is calling you to be. Or maybe you are here and you know that you are not a Christian. And maybe you would like to leave a life of sin behind, a life of sin and wrongdoing. And turn towards God and doing things his way. There was a verse in the middle of chapter 6 that I haven't read out yet. After listing off a whole lot of sins, a whole lot of wrongdoings, a whole lot of impure things in verses 9 to 10, in verse 11, Paul says this, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, that's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful hope. I know that I've sinned. That might be news to you. No, for those of you who know me, you know that's not news. You know I've sinned. I know that on my own, there is no way that I, Thomas, can be the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no way that I can be pure and holy. But through what Jesus did on the cross by dying for my sins and raising again from the dead, as I turn from my sinful past and turn to Jesus, trust him, follow him, he washes me. He washes away that sin, that impurity. He also sanctifies me. That means he makes me holy. He makes me pure. He forgives me from my sin and calls me to live a life of holiness and purity. And I know that even though hopefully I'm becoming more holy through the help of his Holy Spirit and more like him, I know that from time to time I slip up and I sin. I do things that are wrong. I think things that are wrong. And even though I slip up, I know that he will forgive me and restore me when I humbly repent before him. And he can do that for you too. If you're fed income, and genuine with God, and with the help of His Holy Spirit, you truly desire to honour God with your body and your life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this message that you've